Hello, belabored listeners. Today I am joined by guest host Bryce Covert, who is the economics editor at Think Progress, a contributor to The Nation, and one of the best writers I know on the issues of family policy and women in the workplace. Hello, Bryce. Hello, belabored readers, listeners. So we'll we'll be talking about the biggest story of the week in just a little bit. You guessed it, the government shutdown, and we will have a special guest joining us to talk about that. But first, as our longtime 25-week listeners know, we will bring you a brief roundup of hopefully slightly less awful news. Bryce? I'm going to start by talking about good news. Uh, There was some really good news recently on the paid sick days front. Uh, New Jersey City just enacted paid sick days. It is one of now six cities in the country where workers are guaranteed the right to take paid time off if they fall ill or if they need to take care of someone in their family who gets sick. And that was really exciting. And I think the other thing that's perhaps more exciting is that it seems to be part of a growing wave of a push for legislation like this. Just after Jersey City enacted its law, uh, a push started in Newark, New Jersey. There's also one in the entire state of New Jersey. And a bunch of other places are making similar moves. Massachusetts has a push like that, a couple other places. Um, Of course, it comes with a little bit of a downside in that there is a push for preemption bills that blocks local communities and cities from enacting these bills. And right now they actually have enacted more than our side has. But I do think there's a lot of momentum on the side of paid sick days. We've seen some really big cities like New York City enact these laws. Um, There's a lot of evidence coming out that it's good for the economy and it doesn't hurt businesses. So I was really excited to see all of that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether uh, Cory Booker wants to sign Mm -hmm. a Newark bill. (laughs) So this week I'm working on a story at In These Times about a union campaign at a posh New York City candy store. Dylan's Candy Bar is an uptown, upper east side, excuse me, three-story sort of candy heaven. Um, It's owned by Dylan Lauren, who is the daughter of fashion icon Ralph Lauren, and Bulk candy at their Upper East Side store sells for some $13.99 a pound, which, um, you guessed it, the workers make less than $13.99 an hour. Some of them make less than $10 an hour. They complain of rampant favoritism at the store, and they've reached out to the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, RWDSU, for help. We've heard a lot about the problems of low-wage workers this year. The workers at Dillon cited the fast food strikes to me as inspiration for some of their organizing. A lot of that action has been in places like fast food restaurants like Walmart that cater to a lower income population. These are places that have done great in the recession largely because that's all people can afford. When you think about places like this that are making a lot of money, Dylan's is privately held, so we don't have an accurate read on how much they're actually making, but Dylan herself has bragged to people that candy is recession-proof. Um, she told Fox News's Neil Cavuto this back in 2009. But these places that charge premium prices are just as likely to underpay their staff. Even the leads and the supervisors, according to the workers that I spoke to, only get part-time hours and no benefits. There's fancy branding everywhere else in the store. Branded candy bars are three twenty-five. There's a list sports sack, Dylan's candy bar purse collection and t-shirts and like all sorts of things. There's a book that you can buy about, um, I think it's unwrapping your sweet life. It's very heavily branded and very branded upscale. But the one thing that nobody tries to make part of their upscale brand is upscale pay. You know, the workers that I spoke to were excited to work in this place. It looked like a great job to go work all day in a fancy candy store. 
But their experience has been no better than any of the workers at Walmart. I've got another sort of good news, bad news story. Um, A law went into effect on Tuesday in New Jersey that gives victims of domestic violence the right to take unpaid leave to deal with a variety of issues that they might confront. The need to go seek out medical care, the need to go to court, the need to relocate so that they can be safe, and that they can know that they won't be fired if they take this leave to go take care of themselves. It sounds sort of like a no-brainer that someone should be allowed to leave their job to make sure that they are safe and will not come into harm's way, but it's actually it's a rare thing to have a law that protects unpaid leave for something like this. New Jersey joins just 12 other states in the country that have these similar laws. And the laws range quite a lot. Some of them uh, guarantee just three days a year. Um, Some of them are just sort of vague and say that women should be able to take reasonable leave. I don't know if that ends up actually giving them a whole lot of rights. Mm -hmm. And it's emblematic of a lot of the workplace and economic challenges that face victims of violence. The other problem that a lot of victims face is that there are very few states that actually protect women um, and other victims from being fired just for their status of being a victim. There was a story earlier this year of a teacher in California named Carrie Charlesworth who was fired from her job as a teacher when her abusive husband showed up in the parking lot and sent the school into shutdown. And it turns out that at the time, California had no law on the books that protected her from being fired because she was a victim. California is actually now working to right that wrong. There's a bill that was passed by the legislature that would, in fact, protect victims from workplace discrimination that's being waited for Jerry Brown's signature. But again, we have just six states in the country right now that have these protections. That's a very small fraction of our states. There's other things that they face, like housing, where they can be evicted if they call the police too many times under what are known as crime-free housing ordinances that are being quickly adopted across the country, which is extremely scary because a lot of women then feel that they can't call the police when they're in danger, and there's lots of stories of women who have suffered real harm at the hands of their abusers because they were afraid of being evicted. And again, the laws that protect them are very few and far between. There have been some national efforts on this, but they haven't really gone anywhere. So, you know, we have a very patchwork system of protecting domestic violence victims and their economic concerns in this country. So last Friday at the Center for American Progress, which is the parent company of uh, Bryce's employers, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand unveiled her five-point economic plan for women and families. Three parts of the plan are, are simply support for bills that already exist, such as Senator Tom Harkin's minimum wage increase, which would take it up to 10 10 an hour, and Maisie Hirano's bill to expand pre-kindergarten. And, of course, the Paycheck Fairness Act, which Bryce has written about several times, which would increase penalties for pay discrimination, make it easier for women to compare pay with one another and to sue for paycheck discrimination. But the interesting part of this plan is that she does have some new bills that she's putting forward. She's proposed an ambitious new plan for up to three months of paid family leave for all workers, part-time, full-time, anybody would be able to access this. It's funded essentially like Social Security. It actually, I believe, directs the Social Security Administration to administer this program as well. It's funded by worker and employer contributions, matching contributions of 0.2% of the workers' wages each, and would be administered again through government agency, which means that it's not up to your boss whether you can take leave. It's up to 
well, you. Wonderful thing. Of course, it's not going to pass anytime soon. We, you know, remember that whole government shutdown thing we're currently dealing with. But it's nice to see somebody thinking big. Part five of the plan is a plan to double child care tax credits. The tax credits are fully refundable for people who don't face much tax liability, meaning they would get a payment back. Or the other option would be to allow families who don't take this tax credit to then deduct childcare costs from their taxes as a business expense. I find this very interesting because it's saying that childcare is work, that this is in fact an expense that you have to cover in order to be able to work, but also that this is work that needs doing. There's also a line in this bill that includes a tax subsidy for people who go into childcare as their job. Which, again, it's an interesting move to sort of revalue the work of doing childcare while also helping people to pay for childcare. Bryce, of course, you write a lot about family policy. Tell us, what do you think of Gillibrand's proposals? I thought most of them were pretty solid. I wish some of them went further, but of course, in this Congress... Uh... Yeah, I also wish some of them would actually become law. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. I think it's really interesting right now to see two things happening. One is that we're getting a lot of federal attention to these issues, which I don't actually think is very normal. They tend to be in the past anyway, sidelined, they were untouchable. There was rumors that Michelle Obama or Barack Obama were going to take them on at the beginning of the administration, and that never happened. Mm -hmm. They were too hot button. And now we've seen Gillibrand's proposal come forward in the House. Nancy Pelosi put forward a whole women's agenda that is a similar idea mm -hmm. where she's sort of rolling up these other ideas into one package that is focused on helping women in work and families in work. And now the White House is going to have a summit on working families that's going to tackle a lot of these issues, too. So it's getting this attention that it very much deserves, but has these issues have been mostly going on at the state and local level, mm -hmm. and now it's at the national level. And I think the other thing that's interesting is that both Pelosi's package and Gillibrand's package are not just looking at you know the Paycheck Fairness Act and saying, I'm going to fix unfair pay. I'm right. going to, you know, close the gender wage gap or looking at, you know, the minimum wage and saying I'm going to help low wage workers. They're looking at this as a, in a really holistic way and bringing together pieces that I think fit together really well, but don't necessarily occur to people to put together like a minimum wage. I mean, we think of that obviously as just helping low wage workers and sort of lifting the floor, but it is a women's issue. Yeah. Women are the vast majority of people who are holding these jobs. And it's really great to see Congress people thinking in this way, in this sort of holistic, intersectional way about mm -hmm. these issues. You and I both wrote in the last week about New York City's Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which I mentioned briefly on last week's podcast, something that, again, will mean a lot, particularly to lower wage workers who aren't sitting at a desk, but who are doing physical labor that they may not be able to do as well when they are pregnant. Even Bloomberg, who's vetoed almost every other worker protection that has passed the city council, plans to sign this bill. What do you think the odds are of passing something like this on a national level? Is this something that could actually sneak through as less offensive to horrible people? I think it definitely has a lot of potential. I mean, there has been a Pregnant Workers Fairness Act introduced multiple times mm -hmm. in the House and in the Senate, and it hasn't gone anywhere yet. But I do think it's one of those 
kind of no-brainers. It's not really asking for a lot. What it's really just asking for is that employers work with pregnant workers to find a way to keep them on the job so that they can go to work, they can earn a paycheck, they can have health care, they can have healthy pregnancies and healthy babies. The employers themselves can keep getting that productivity from their well-trained, experienced workers. It's not like we're asking for them to, like, give pregnant workers a $10,000 bonus and send them off on a vacation. Like, this is just really asking them to keep them on their job. And I think the fact that we don't have anything like this is a sign that our laws are just so outdated. Women have been working and during their pregnancies and at other times in their lives and have made up about half of the workforce for a while now. But we just don't have the laws to make it clear to employers what that requires of them to help accommodate the fact that they sometimes get pregnant and yeah. need to deal with that on the job. So, Yeah, and particularly that, you know, people who may become pregnant are doing physical labor, that it's yeah. not like a 60s image of the Kelly girl who's doing, you know, her white glove typing that you could probably do at eight months pregnant as long as your pregnancy is not too tough. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting... Again, I I sort of like the work that that bill does on a a sort of intellectual, ideological level. So leading up to our topic du jour today, the terrible, terrible shutdown, you wrote also this week about Congress failing to reauthorize the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or what's left of welfare after Clinton and Newt Gingrich got through with it. Tell us what that means. So I think... What's baffling to me, obviously the shutdown is the big story of the week. I mean, the government is closed, and that is extraordinary. But the other thing that happened on midnight, um, on the evening of Monday, was that Congress also failed to reauthorize TANF, as you said, otherwise known as welfare. It used to be that the whole bill would be reauthorized every year, which would mean they, they would update it, they would pass another package. But that has not happened, and instead Congress lately has been just sort of extending it and extending it in these short spurts, kind of like the continuing resolutions that keep Mm -hmm. the government open. And it expired along with the funding for the government. We we don't entirely know what this means right now because, in theory, it shouldn't mean anything for beneficiaries. States should have extra money that they can use to cover benefits right now. They should be able to sort of float it forward and then come back to the government when it's open again and say, hey, pay me for what I just did. But states have to decide to do that. Yeah. We don't know if they are. Benefits go out on the first of the month, so on October 1st, the EBT card should have been re-upped, but we don't know for certain that that happened. And I personally am a little bit nervous that some red states have decided not to. Mm -hmm. It means spending their own money, and red states don't like welfare, and they also don't like spending money. There are very few, in fact, almost zero federal requirements on how states do welfare now after reform. including like they don't have to keep paying benefits if the federal money doesn't come through. So there's a real state of limbo going on right now for welfare recipients. I would be really worried if I was one. You know, people really rely on this money. It helps Mm -hmm. lift people out of poverty, even in its withered state. So, you know, we're not really talking about it a lot, but it's definitely really concerning. So we're going to be joined in just a minute by Maria Strauss, who has a piece up at In These Times about federal workers and the shutdown. But first, I I want to ask you to sort of give us the broad picture of what the shutdown is, where this distinction between essential and inessential workers comes from, you know, just the big picture of what this, what the hell is going on in Washington. Right. So, so here, here are the basics. Congress failed to pass what's called a continuing resolution. That's a very short term measure that 
literally funds the government and keeps the doors open. What happens normally is that they pass a budget, which is a whole, it's much more of a philosophical thing about what should get funded and how and all these details. But because the House and the Senate are so far apart, they can't do that. They just keep passing these short-term extensions. And the Republicans have decided basically since 2010 that rather than pass these routinely and keep things running, they're going to start making pretty crazy demands in return for just keeping business as usual. They started doing that for this one. They decided that they were going to try and defund or delay Obamacare. Obviously, this is an issue that's DOA in the Senate, not to mention with President Obama, who's, this is his signature legislation. They weren't able to reach an agreement by midnight, you know, Monday evening, and the funding ran out. What that means in you know real-world terms is that the government agencies had to divide their employees into essential and non-essential workers. Essential ones are supposed to be the ones that you know just keep the country from falling into a post-apocalyptic state, keep safety going, things like that. And then non-essential ones are everyone else. There's about 800,000 workers who are, were deemed non-essential who have been furloughed, which means that they legally are not allowed to do any work, even if they want to, and of course are not paid. They go home. And then the essential employees are forced to go in and could be fired if they don't and are also not paid. And in theory, all of these workers will get pay when they come back, but there's actually no guarantee of that. That's up to Congress. And given the Congress we have, that's a big question mark. It happened last time, but also last time we didn't have the Tea Party. So there's a lot of uncertainty here. It's hurting a lot of people now that a lot of different kinds of federal funds aren't going out. And uh, I think everybody is looking at Congress and saying, what are you doing? So with us now is labor reporter Maria Strauss, who has an excellent piece in, on the shutdown at In These Times. She's joining us now to talk about it. I'm going to let her tell you what's going on. Tell us what's going on with your family with the shutdown. What's going on with my family is that my partner, uh, my husband, works at the Library of Congress for the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. His job in the government is that he performs quality checks on the books and magazines and other reading material for the blind and physically handicapped to use for free through the United States Library of Congress. So he is locked out of his job right now. We are referring to this as a lockout. A lot of people have been asking me what a furlough means. And when we look it up, it turns out that a furlough it is also a forced work stoppage, sometimes with pay, sometimes without, but it usually involves some element of employee choice, and it usually has a time limit pre-attached to it. So you would say, okay, I'm going to have three days of a furlough this year, that, or seven days this year that I have to take a furlough day and not work. And in this case, it happened all at once. Employees were given no choice in the matter. And uh, there is no time limit placed on it. We have no idea when he might get called back to work. So this is a lockout in just about every sense. So we do not have his income right now. Has he talked to you at all about what it's been like in his office watching Congress basically playing games with their jobs? Yeah, it's, it's been infuriating and also confusing. I think there's a lot of disinformation and lack of information that gets to the actual frontline federal workers. 
they are busy doing their jobs. In fact, federal workers have enough work to fill their full shift for every day and then some. My husband always has a pile of work uh, on his desk that's waiting to be done no matter how fast he gets through the work. And so he he does not have time normally to be checking the news or checking Twitter or checking any of the places that you might get information about an impending shutdown of the government. Uh, so it was a meeting at about one o'clock in the afternoon, I think, the day before the shutdown on Monday, where he learned that this was actually going to take place. And, you know, it was just shut down your computers, make sure all, you know everything is password protected make sure the doors are locked and leave. Yeah. So when I was reading up on this, mm-hmm. I noticed that the description of, you know, who stays on, whether or not they're getting paid and who just gets sent mm-hmm. home has to do with essential activities to the extent that they protect life and property. Mm-hmm. So air traffic control, stuff like that. But the more I looked at it, the more it seemed that property was the important uh, concern there. That, you know, things Mm -hmm. like women, infants, and children are being cut off, which absolutely protect life. OSHA is shut down, which absolutely protects life. But the DEA is still operating, Mm -hmm. for instance. These are priorities that somebody decided on, right? They decided that making sure the Library of Congress is accessible is not essential, but making sure that people go to jail for drug crimes is essential. I mean, what do you think about what the state of this and who got left out says about our government's priorities and how they make these decisions? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And I think that it really goes to the spirit of where this government shutdown comes from. Well, I don't know who is in charge of deciding which agencies and which sub-agencies within agencies get shut down. So I don't know who is making those selections, But the selections do appear to be arbitrary enough to engender a deep kind of fear in most of the federal employees that I've talked to. So it's sort of like you don't know if you're going to be kept or not. And it makes it very hard to continue to keep calm and carry on and keep doing your job in the kind of brave way that we always think of when we think of other federal employees like the U.S. military, for example, you know, who it required, I think, a specific act of Congress to make sure that they would get paid. I think that that happened either today or, or yesterday. I'm, I'm sure that the devil is in the details with a government shutdown, and there are a lot of tough decisions to be made. But I think that when you are stopping workplace safety inspections, when you're stopping mine safety inspections, where there's been a documented loss of life when those inspections are either halted or delayed. I think you have to look at who is making those decisions. I do think that mine safety is staying open, but that OSHA is not. And also a friend of mine who is a union organizer who was going to file for an NLRB election found that he could not do that because, of course, the NLRB is closed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You write a lot about workplace injury, which is a very cheerful subject, in the mess of times. I mean, talk a little bit about, like, OSHA's not in great shape anyway. What this additional shutdown means for people in dangerous jobs, people with complaints. What does this mean? How much harder is life going to be for them? 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be harder for sure. This is one area where it's very true that the government shutdown is having a clear impact on the private sector and private employers. So when we talk about the interconnected web of employment and jobs in this country and how some jobs depend on other jobs, uh, that is certainly the case with workplace safety inspections, um, with OSHA, with the Mine Safety and Health Administration. It was uh, Ken Ward Jr. from the Charleston Gazette, I think, who tweeted yesterday that the Mine Safety and Health agency lost 60% of its staff, so I'm not sure if they're going forward with inspections or not. Um, But yeah, I mean, in the case of OSHA, if they're halting inspections, what that means is OSHA will only investigate or inspect a workplace if if they receive a call from an employee in that workplace citing an imminent danger, they'll come right away. If they receive documentation from somebody outside the workplace that there's an imminent danger, like a piece of concrete that's about to fall on somebody, something like that, they'll come out and inspect. But with the government shut down, they won't. So that, to me, is kind of the most pressing issue in terms of workplace safety, that there are these, you know, imminent dangers you can imagine, you know, dotted all across the country at work sites where maybe the best safety protocols have not been followed, and there is nobody minding the store. There's nobody who's going to come and inspect that. So you, you write a lot in your piece about how, you know, right now public workers are basically in the crosshairs of this shutdown. They're feeling a really big impact and sort of being bandied about by Congress as it's going through these games, but that it actually means something for the rest of us. It's not, you can't just sort of dismiss public workers as, well, I'm not one, so therefore this doesn't mean anything for me. That the attacks on these government workers, they're happening now, and I would sort of extrapolate to lots of attacks we've seen on government workers are actually a symptom of larger attacks on workers, their rights, their benefits, their pays. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that's right, and I think that this might be one case where the Republicans have actually harmed their own agenda by shutting down the government and overreaching uh, in this way to try to divide the workforce against each other. I think when my husband talks about his job to people who don't have any familiarity with the Library of Congress or its functions, they just sort of think of it as this Enlightenment-era gift of Thomas Jefferson to the United States, but in fact it has a lot of uh, functions that people consider really vital to their well-being and their way of life, and certainly the program National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped is, uh, you know, a program that people consider extremely vital to their mental health and to their well-being, and so when my husband describes that to people who are in the rest of the workforce, there's sort of a recognition that, yeah, that is really important. That is something that, you know, should go forward. Uh, I'm really glad that exists. Is something that we hear a lot when we talk about his job to people. And so um, I actually think in this case that the Republicans trying to paint federal workers as somehow expendable or like this is just going to be a vacation for them and this is not something that others need to really worry about, I think that that is backfiring. From what I am hearing from people, and part of this, I I think, too, is because the 
federal government is intertwined with the private sector in perhaps more ways than it ever has been before. We have a lot of what are called public-private partnerships going on around the country with regard to how parks are run, regional parks. I know you guys in New York City, for instance, you have the High Line Park, which is run as kind of a public-private partnership. And there are aspects of that that involve federal workers. And those, are ha- those partnerships are suffering now as a result as well and having to lay people off during the shutdown. And government contractors, in addition, are losing their programs or being told they cannot work on specific programs because of the government shutdown. So I think people actually understand pretty well what's at stake and the magnitude of what we lose when we talk about losing or shrinking the federal government. In your piece, you link this fight to, of course, the looming next ridiculous epic showdown over the debt limit. Talk about that, yeah. and, and you sort of make the point that what's happening to public workers now will really mm-hmm. hit everybody if the debt limit fight goes nuclear. That's right. And so, for example, my in my case, so we own our home, and I work part-time. My husband works full-time for the Library of Congress. I work part-time as a freelancer, and I take care of our two children. And so the government shutting down has meant for us, uh, we have actually had to go ahead and apply for a modification, our mortgage loan, to make sure that we can continue to make our mortgage payments. Uh, We do live paycheck to paycheck because of the furloughs and pay freeze that were imposed by the sequester, which was the last round of hostage negotiations that the Republicans prompted. So... We are, we've been in this paycheck to paycheck situation. Now comes this government shutdown. We've tightened our belts as much as we can, uh, reduced our bills, um, doing our grocery shopping differently so that we save as much as we can every month. Now it's looking like the, uh, modification on our loan does not come through. We will probably have to pull one of our kids out of childcare, um, which is what allows me to do my work. And so then I would be looking at either losing some of my income or having to just find some other kind of childcare situation, which I don't know what that would be. <laughs> um, so that's our situation. But I think if you multiply it, so all we need to do with the debt ceiling is imagine that multiplied across everyone in the community almost, or at least one third of government spending would have to be cut if we reach October 17th without raising the debt ceiling. That's what I understand. So if the debt ceiling doesn't get raised by October 17th, 32% of government spending will have to be cut immediately. Um, And then the Treasury will be in the position of having to prioritize which of our national debts get paid back. (laughs) I mean, this government shutdown is really small ball. If this affects 800,000 federal employees directly have been locked out as a result of the government shutdown and the debt limit ceiling crisis would prompt a much bigger crisis. Many, many more than 800,000 people would be either laid off from their jobs or just fired. So I saw today that the low-wage workers who've been organizing as part of the fast food campaign, um, the Good Jobs Now Mm -hmm. campaign, we're holding okay. an action at Boehner's rally today because they are also not working because they are also in non-essential government-funded positions. 
Have you heard of anything else, any of the workers taking action, anything like that that's going on? Well, on Monday, folks in Chicago and Boston both went out on picket lines, uh, actually right before the shutdown happened. That was Monday. So they were going out with picket signs at Daly Plaza uh, in downtown Chicago and then also in Boston in front of, I think, the federal building there. Folks were calling on, you know, Congress to do the right thing and not shut the government down. So that was before this started. I just added an update to my piece uh, at In These Times, actually, that has an interactive map of rallies and demonstrations that will be happening around the country. And that was put together by the AFL-CIO. This weekend, there's going to be a bunch of rallies and things happening around the country for immigration reform. Mm -hmm. That's something that's been planned for a long time. Yeah. But this clickable map that I linked to at the end of my piece at, over at In These Times does have a few rallies that are planned in protest of the government shutdown directly. So I think the question on certainly uh, government employees' minds, but it probably everybody's minds who is concerned about the shutdown, is mm-hmm. where are we going? The government is shut down. Yeah. Congress seems to not really have budged much on much of anything. What's the end game? You know, how do we open the government again? What is going to come with that? Because if we've seen anything, it's that it will come with some sort of terrible concessions. And then, of course, there's the looming debt ceiling, which is, as you've been describing, far scarier if, you know, that gets messed with. Yeah. Well, um, there was a great piece over at Think Progress the other day. Bernie, I don't know if you saw that. That is a list of the demands that the Tea Party Caucus has in general that they have tied to the fight over the debt limit, but that has also, elements of it have also been in play with the government shutdown. I don't know if you saw that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this fight goes back at least 20 years to the... 1994 to 96 Congress in which Newt Gingrich was the Speaker of the House and in which he led the Republican majority to shut down the government under Bill Clinton's presidency, and that was for 17 days, and it was a very similar hostage kind of situation where they said, you know, meet our demands or we will close the government and keep it closed. And we lost billions of dollars during that time. Eventually, the federal employees did get paid retroactively for the time that they had lost on the job. But, you know, vital services, you know, there's no way to reimburse people for vital services not being provided. Um, There's no way to reimburse, you know, the family of a construction worker who, you know, is injured on the job because there's no safety inspector there. So these are the kinds of impacts we're likely to see the longer this government shutdown drags out. However, the terms of the impasse between the Republicans and Democrats at this point are pretty different than they were 20 years ago. So I don't really know how the whole thing is going to play out. Uh, I I do know that so far, you know, the Democratic leadership in both the House and Senate and the president have refused to budge in terms of exceeding to any of the <laughs> Tea Party or list of demands, but it remains to be seen how long they can hold out. Yeah. I think one of the things that terrifies me is that 
you know, sequestration was supposed to be this horrible thing that no one would want, and it was just sort of the, like, ransom to get Congress to act. And we've been living with it for almost a year now, and basically all of the continuing resolution bills take sequestration as a given. No one has talked about doing it. Um, So it's just like the new normal. And now I'm watching the Republicans, they've shut the government down, and they're saying, okay, we're just going to open up the little pieces that we like. And... Like you said, you know, Democrats have been holding the line, and it's been good to see, but how long are they going to do that? You know, I think a lot of progressives don't have a ton of faith in their ability to stand really firm, and does that mean that a shutdown government with, like, little cherry-picked pieces is the new normal? Like, I have this deep fear that that's what we're facing, and I think that's what they want. Well, I think the good news is, though, is that I hear you about that. I think that is a valid concern and very based in reality. However, I do think that the good news is that all of the things that have happened so far, including sequestration, are reversible. And this is the direction that I think progressives need to start trying to think. It is difficult in a crisis not to just hunker down and want to say, no, 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 let's bring things back to the way they were. Back to the way they were, however, is not enough. And I think what I would really like to see from progressives during this period is to use this period to brainstorm what our set of proposals would be, what would our list of 21 demands be, not that our side would want to shut down the government or stop things from working, but just what is the set of proposals that people who participated in Occupy Wall Street would like to see? What are the set of proposals that people who are interested in immigration reform would like to see? And put those across to the Democratic leadership and say, instead of just saying no to these people, we need to just come back with these. I saw someone tweet today, and they were like, where's the Ted Cruz on the Democratic side who's going to say, sure, I'll reopen the government if you give me single-payer health care. Or like, sure, we'll we'll defund Obamacare if you give a single-payer. Right. Or like, I'd like to see Mm -hmm. someone be like, Bernie Sanders, we're calling you. Yeah. (laughs) Come on, Bernie. Yeah. Like, universal pre-K. Give us that. Yeah. You know, we'll do, we'll we'll talk. Um, we, We don't see that kind of like tactical forward thinking, the, yeah. like, offense playing on yeah. that side. I mean, to go back to the labor metaphor there for a second, right? Yeah. Like, if we're talking about this as a lockout, mm-hmm. well, usually when there's a lockout, it's because there's been a conflict and both sides have demands. So, right. yeah, I think right. it's about time that we put forward some of our demands. And they should be brave. Right, and, we, and it's not, Nancy Pelosi's not going to come up with that list. No. Yeah. No. Like, that's that the grassroots have to, have to come up with that list and push it, you know, it may take additional years of organizing and registering new voters to turn the legislature around so that we're able to put that agenda forward. But I think it can happen. I actually think, based on the last Congress, I think the Republicans are running scared. This is the act of a desperate group, um, the Tea Party years. They actually don't have a master plan. They're not playing 11-dimensional chess. They are just not that bright. And so I I do think that it would behoove us and our side to be prepared for a moment of the tables being turned. All right. Well, thank you so much, Maria, for joining us and good luck to you and your family. Long-time listeners will know and will probably be sad once again that Josh is not here to say, ARG. I wish I'd written that. 
I will try very hard to live up to his legacy. In any case, Bryce, this week, if you were stranded in the middle of a snowstorm and you had to light your way back home just with the jealousy that you have for some piece that somebody had written somewhere in the world, what would it be? It would be a story on the American Prospect called Daddy's Home by Sharon Lerner. And I opened it up today and I immediately said, "Arg!" and was like, I have to talk about this here. Um, It's a fantastic piece. It looks at California's paid family leave program. We've been talking a lot about paid family leave and what it's doing for fathers. We talk a lot about family leave as a women's issue and of course women are still considered to be the default caretakers in this country they do a lot of care work but they are one half of heterosexual couples that have children and there's another person around who is the father who is also often taking care of his child what's really interesting about what's going on in california is that we're finding out that if the leave is paid men are so much more likely to take it. And not only that, but she really documents in her article that it can bring about a cultural shift. You know, there's a lot of talk about whether you need the cultural shift and then you do the policy or you do the policy and then it brings about the cultural shift. And I think this article by Sharon Lerner really makes it clear that the chicken and the egg situation is that policy can really drive that shift. Uh, Right now in the country, you know, in theory, a lot of workers are covered under the um, federal law that gives unpaid leave, but we know that men don't take it very often. And I think a big part of that is economics. It's hard to lose two paychecks. So, you know, women take time off because they have to physically recuperate and men keep going to work and earning. But a lot of it is cultural. A lot of it is the fact that it's not the norm for men to take the time off. So employers are sort of weirded out when they're like, hey, I'm going to disappear for a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. And it also, you know, the, one of the points that Lerner makes is it, by paying for that leave, you're putting sort of this like economic value on the time that you take off to go be with your kid, which really changes the way you think about it and the way that your employer thinks about it. And she talks to these fathers who have said, you know, the, the first child I had, I told my employer I was going to take time off. He thought I was crazy. There were no other fathers around. Now they tell their employees and their employers are like, have fun. It's going to be great. And then they have all these other dads to hang out with, with babies. And I think there's this real revolution happening in California that if we had paid leave at the national level that all workers could access, I think we would really start to see that quickly happen in the rest of the country. That would be exciting. We will put a link to this piece at the Descent website, as we always do. Last year, when the NFL locked out its referees, Mike Elk and Dave Zirin wrote at The Nation um, comparing the league's treatment of the refs to using an Uzi on a field mouse. If that was true of how the league treats the refs, who make about $8,000 a week, what can be said of how it treats its cheerleaders, who make as little as $100 a week? Lynn Paramore has a piece up at Alternet called Professional Cheerleaders Face Exploitation, Low Pay, and No Benefits, and her piece really explores a lot more than just that. But the bare-bones basics of it are that the cheerleaders bring in a lot of revenue for the league and are almost completely shut out of the benefits of that revenue. Like other professional athletes, the cheerleaders often do demanding stunts and face injury on the job, but have no health plan to treat any work-related injuries. They're only paid for game day, not for practice or promotional appearances. Back when I lived in New Orleans, when I was in college, I worked at a restaurant where one of our hostesses was a Saints cheerleader. At the restaurant, she probably took home $8 an hour, but that was better than what she made from her main 
gig, the supposedly prestigious job that she had to try out for and work very hard to maintain. Of course, the pressure is there to, to look good and to keep smiling. Um, the emotional and the physical labor of staying in shape, staying, you know, cheerleader thin and fit is not actually easy, as many of us probably know. Um, the cheerleaders are there to be looked at, and their hard work is actually erased and discounted by their low pay. Lynn tells us the story of one cheerleading squad that tried to form a union, the Jills who cheer for the Buffalo Bills, who at one point had to pay their own way to the Super Bowl to do their job when the Bills made multiple Super Bowl appearances not that long ago. That's sort of the ultimate pay-to-play, right? I am quite sure that getting to the Super Bowl, getting into the Super Bowl, cost a heck of a lot more than anything that they were making. They were successful for a little while in creating a union, but it did not last. Check out Lynn's piece. We will put a link to it as well on the Descent website. That brings us to the end of episode 25 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. We thank you for sticking with us through the good and bad news. We thank Bryce for being a wonderful guest host. It was a pleasure. And we will be back next week with episode 26 with another exciting guest host and with much more news. This life is hard, so hard I must